Welcome to From the Ground Up, insights into crop production productivity from Salford's agronomy expert, Jim Boak. Good morning. Today is Monday, February 27th, and you are listening to From the Ground Up. Today we have part two and the final part of our interview with Chris Defonzo of MSU on winning the bug war. Are there any crop species that these critters would be discouraged by? You mean like they're repelled by them? Yes. We have a large growing interest and a number of producers that are now starting to interseed their corn with cover crops, trying to get in at the V5, V6 stage, some at V4, depending on the herbicide program. And I was wondering if there's any species of cover crop that would be you know, suitable for that purpose that would discourage this female moss from even wanting to go into that corn crop. Hmm. There's none that I know of, and I don't know what she would sense that would repel her. You know, I mean, they're kind of flying around the landscape anyway. They'll go into dry beans, which is a legume, which, you know, it's quite different from corn, quite different type of leaf and canopy, and they don't seem to be bothered to switch from corn to a dry bean field. We've tested them. Jocelyn Smith in my lab had a lot of data by putting larvae on other crops that were thought to be something that they might attack, like tomatoes and peppers and some other grasses. And they sometimes will feed a little bit on those, but they don't complete development. I don't think that there would be anything with a cover crop, a smell, or something that would repel them. The only thing that I could think of is that if there was a cover crop that when they're flying up and down the corn row, something that changed what it physically looks like under that canopy. But that would be a really tall cover crop. So yes. <laughs> it would probably be disrupting the that, corn as well. Right. You know, like discouraging them from flying down that row, something like that. So... I don't think that's going to help either. What other insects do we need to be keeping a close watch on besides this one? Well, cereal leaf beetle is certainly kind of an interesting situation. And I don't know in Ontario what has been going on there. But in the last few years, you know, we've had kind of more intensive wheat management, which would include more fungicide applications. And the minute we get more fungicide applications going on, then we had the idea that, you know, throwing the insecticide in the tank. So we've seen in the past few years just a creeping back of cereal leaf beetle, some of it in winter wheat, but certainly in the in the spring planted, like a spring wheat or oats. We've always kind of seen it in oats. But this year I saw some infestations that were the biggest that I had ever seen. And back to you know, what the old pictures in the 60s looked like. And for people that don't remember, cereal leaf beetle was initially found in Michigan in 1962, bizarrely enough, at the, along the coast of Lake Michigan. And that's apparently where it was introduced or somehow came into the U.S. And it moved around the U.S. and it became a tremendous pest in wheat that uh, led to a lot of spraying. But the U.S. government had a biological control program and several different biological control agents were brought in from overseas and released over many years and those spread around the country and pretty much controlled cereal leaf beetle, at least in this kind of Great Lakes area. So when I started at MSU 20 years ago, I'd never seen a cereal leaf beetle and it was a number of years before I even saw one. But this year we had some pretty bad pockets. So I would attribute that 
maybe to the insecticide sprays being dumped in and maybe disrupting the biological control in June and July, or maybe just some climate change that's making the biological control out of sync with the cereal leaf beetle life cycle. And I, and I don't know if that's what it is or if there's something else going on. Those are two that we, we need to keep an eye on. Yeah, and and cereal leaf beetle also um, mild winters, more mild kind of conditions. They they overwinter kind of in the in the tree lines or in the woodlots along fields where they can get under debris and stuff like that. So you think about uh, a milder winter, which we've certainly had, and those kind of things over time might also be increasing the populations too. And again, I don't know the situation over in Ontario. I don't know if people are seeing some of the same things. We have a good system here that Omafra supports and backs up field crop news. And we have, you know, people like Tracy Bodie, for instance, kind of watching for us. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be checking our own fields, but they have the information there. If a producer will go and look and, yeah. and give us the heads up and at least warn us to get out and have a look. The, the other issue is this overarching drumbeat, I guess you'd say, with aphids. And I think, again, this is more in the western corn belt of the U.S. where we have people recommending that if you see an aphid, spray an aphid. Where we've always, in the for the eastern side, kind of relied more on believing in the thresholds. And there's some evidence of aphid resistance to pyrethroids now out in that western corn belt, Iowa, Minnesota and then resistance to spider mites as they've been spraying aphids getting spider mite resistance. And so I think there's just a continuous reminder to people to use those thresholds, do the scouting, and I think we're much better off in the eastern Corn Belt because we have more crop diversity, crop rotation, the woodlots and the field edge where our biocontrol kind of hangs out, and we perhaps can do a better job in managing these pests by relying on nature first and then relying on insecticides when we need it and the insecticides still work. So that's our general goal. Good crop health, lots of rotations, good soil health. Yep, yep, oh, yeah. all, all of that coming together. Wind. Same with corn rootworms and Bt. All the Bts have failed in the western corn belt to corn rootworm. And those folks are managing corn rootworm. They're planting their BT hybrids because they're the better elite hybrids anyway, but they're oftentimes using an insecticide over top of it now. And we have had a few cases of what looks to be resistance in the in the eastern corn belt, little little pockets, but typically those growers have rotated those fields to get out of it for a year. And our BTs are still kind of holding up. So again, it's that thinking about our diverse landscape. I know people sometimes complain and say, man, I wish I had Iowa soil or something. But we have some things that they don't have out there that we're lucky to have that allow us to still use some of this technology and some of these insecticides when we need them because we didn't just use them year after year willy-nilly when we didn't need them. Chris, I know when you were doing your presentation at SWAC, you referred to a number of large-scale studies. Could you speak a little bit about the one that I was thinking of was the refuge in the bags that you were talking oh, about there? Yeah. yeah, one of the issues, if we look at, you know, growers have asked, well, how come Cry1F doesn't work anymore with Western Mean Cutworm? And there's a couple things going on. First, Cry1F was probably never really that good on Western Bean Cutworm in the first place. It's a corn borer toxin. And at some point, as Western bean cutworm moved into our area, it kind of got added to the Cry1F label as having control, but it never really had very good control. 
The second thing that's probably happening is that there is resistance actually developing, like like true resistance. That has to be proven, like in lab assays, but that's probably also happening too. The third thing that probably enhanced this, and this is just a guess, is when we went from the block refuge, the separate 20% refuge that was in a separate part of the field or in a, or just a separate field to this refuge in a bag that made it really easy for the grower to plant the refuge and it makes 100% compliance and it's only 5% and, and that's great. But on the other hand, when you take an insect that's not well killed by a BT toxin and you sprinkle the refuge plants into that background of a BT field, then if that egg mass is laid on the refuge plant, those little caterpillars kind of probably get a foothold. They grow a little bit. They get big enough where they're no longer that susceptible to BT, and then they begin to move up and down the row and damage the cry1f corn. So it would make a lot of sense to think that refuge in a bag contributed to this increase to driving resistance development of western bean or contributing to more damage. And I showed data at SWAC from a study that I had done in 2010 or 2011. It was actually just an industry study. That data was provided to the registrant, but in a non-BT you know, uh, 82% of the ears were damaged, and that would be expected. In a block of smart stacks, 30-some percent of the ears were damaged, which isn't great, but it's less. But when you went to the smart stacks refuge in a bag treatment with 5% non-BT, that ear infestation went back up to, to almost 75%. So just by adding 5% refuge corn into that smart stacks mix, it went from 30% of the ears damaged and rocketed back up to 75%. So that suggests that rib does something to contribute to some of this damage. And it's not just for Western bean cutworm. Folks in the southern part of the U.S. where they have other pests like corn earworm and fall armyworm, which are also secondary pests, have seen the same thing in BT blocks versus a rib block. And I know that sentiment was kind of what set a couple of the producers off that were uh, listening to that. Just what's the point then in getting BT corn at all? Yeah, there, and there would be two issues. First, BT corn still works for corn borer. So we shouldn't forget corn borer, which most young people have. I was doing a guest lecture yesterday in a class, you know, and these were 18 to 20-year-olds, and I was showing corn borer, and I said, who's seen a corn borer? And not one hand of the 50 students went up. No one's seen corn borer or corn borer damage. They don't remember that. But we do remember, the older folks (laughs) do remember corn borer. And that, you know, it's not to say that corn borer can't come back. It's still still out there in, in other crops. And in conventional corn and organic corn, when that gets planted in an area. So for corn borer, it's been a great success. And in in the fringe region, in the eastern region, still most of these BTs are holding up for rootworm. So for some pests, it's still useful. The other thing that you have to remember is the hybrids that have the trait packages tend to be the better base genetics anyway. So I always liken it to you don't buy the truck for the fancy radio, you buy the truck for the engine that's in it or the towing power or something. <laughs> so you need a good truck to be, you need a good engine first and it doesn't matter that it has a fancy radio if it doesn't start. 
So the tendency is if the grower wants the better genetics, they're going to end up with a BT corn. Yeah. So that's just sort of the way that it is, kind of. That's not to say that there are some good BTs available in conventional corn, but you may have to work harder to find that or order earlier or, you know, do some testing. And once you get that non-BT corn or just Roundup Ready, then you have to remember that doesn't just sit out there naked. You have to go and scout it. That's the boots on the ground. You really have to get out there and scout it. Although I've just told you that you have to scout your BT corn too. So <laughs> it may not save you very much. I think it gets back to we have a lot of tools and we just have to use all of them. Don't don't let her foot off the gas. You know, use the tools that are there and, and maybe put a sticker on the dash of our pickup truck that says, <laughs> what are the consequences of my actions? And put some thought into using all of those tools and not throwing some of them away just because it didn't work here or there once or twice. Yeah, I do recognize in a lot of my winter meetings, I've had a lot of pushback from growers that say, well, I'm not going to scout, or I don't know how to scout, or it takes me too long to scout. And, you know, that it's true. It's not sexy and exciting to go out into the middle of a cornfield in uh, July, it's not like the thing that you want to do, but there are some places where there are more crop consultants available who will do more of that scouting. But I think a lot in, in uh, Michigan, and I don't know this, the situation in Ontario, we don't have a lot of those folks in like field court. So unfortunately, I just think to grow really good quality corn and to manage it properly, it's going to be a, a bit of a change to get out and do more walking and and then it, it's on the extension folks to then train people how to do that scouting everyone's excited about drones but are they <laughs> good enough are they able to get close enough or get good enough pictures to make them effective as, as a scout or a scouting assistant gosh not uh, i wouldn't think for scouting for egg masses no I mean, I, I can see drones being able to detect with certain kind of sensors like the nutrient deficiencies or wet and dry areas and or maybe like in a crop where maybe there's a virus issue and there's virus moving out from an area where you kind of have a pocket where the crop is a different color or it's a, showing stress. But unless you can get a hundred teeny little drones that are going to go up and down the row <laughs> and actually try to look for egg masses, I, I don't know how that would work out. You could imagine if corn borer was back. In the old days, corn borer, the second generation would kind of bore into the plant and the tassel would fall over. And it was very distinctive. You could look at a field and go, man, I bet you that has corn borer. That's the kind of damage where uh, if a drone was going over, I, I guess I can imagine that the drone could see that the tassels are straight or the tassels have lodged over. Or now that I'm thinking on my feet, a lot of this corn rootworm damage when we have these kind of odd resistant looking fields, these unexpected damage, a lot of that damage is way back into the field, like where a person would not want to walk. And I can imagine if you had an aerial view of that, you could very quickly detect big patches of lodging in that field so that I didn't have to walk all the way out into there and kind of zigzag back and forth. I mean, some of the Google Earth pictures, if you get them from September, I've been able to see some of those fields. So a drone could definitely see that kind of thing. So it's maybe just another tool, but it doesn't mean that we can get out of the job of scouting. Yeah, especially that very fine scouting when you're looking for an egg mass. I think the drone is good for seeing the after effects. 
<laughs> where something's already gone bad and it has to be a big enough area. Funny that you asked but, that, Jim. I was thinking the exact same thing. I also saw Norm Lamos' presentation on drones and agriculture at SWAC. We're actually talking about interviewing him in the spring, so we'll have to put that thought in his head and see if they can figure out some technology for that. Definitely for corn rootworm issues where you have lodging. It's after the fact. But that would be great because they could just very quickly kind of zigzag over a field and that would that would be super obvious. The last thing that just occurred to me that I thought I would mention for your listeners is that the handy BT trait table was updated at the end of 2016 for 2017 because we've been talking about western mean cutworm. It includes a new column where we not only list the type of product like uh, Herculex or Acre Max, whatever the, the trait family is called, and we tell you what BTs are in it, and we tell you what it's supposed to control, but there's a new column that tells you what insects, that there's populations locally or regionally where we know that it's ineffective. That doesn't mean it's ineffective right in their farm, but someplace in the U.S. or Canada, there have been failures of that BT or challenges of that pest on that BT that is in that trait package. So you'll see that Western bean cutworm and Cry1F, that it's listed there, as well as corn rootworm. So it's just some additional information for farmers to get back, get into their heads that, yeah, these BTs are out there, but we have to be careful how we use them because there are populations where things are not working anymore. A lot of ag businesses have copies of this, but it's at msuent.com. It's just free up there. So msuent.com. So if you go, go to that website, You'll see right at the front page, whatever the latest trait table is, it's right up there for anybody just to print it off and look at it. Awesome. Well, that's excellent. Chris, are you on social media at all? Yes, I'm on Twitter. My Twitter handle is aphidqueen. Nickname. You know, one point seven aphids were they're they're my still my favorite thing. So it's at aphid <laughs> at at, at, at uh, aphid queen, and I don't uh, I don't twitterize a lot. I just use it. I'm not like the president of the United States. I don't uh, twitterize every day. Uh, I I only do it you know when it's something that's important or you know I probably do ten tweets a year or something. So all right, well we will tag you uh, when we put this out. Thanks for listening. You can stay up to date with Selford on Twitter at Selford Group and on Facebook, same thing, Selford Group. From the Ground Up was brought to you by Selford Group, manufacturers of Airway, BBI, Valmar, and Selford tillage, seeding, and application equipment. For more information on Selford Group, go to selfordgroup.com or call 1-866-442-1292.